We'll take your Bible and let's find our way back to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we're studying through this amazing letter from Paul to the Ephesian believers and have been taking our time through it and have come to a paragraph that we've been studying for some weeks now on a godly marriage. In fact, I think it's 11 or 12 weeks we've spent just in this paragraph and I would encourage you that we have nowhere near mined the depths of the amazing theology and practical application that is here for us. Today we'll be looking at a summary of this that Paul imports himself into the end of this paragraph. Now each week we've read this paragraph and I will read it again just so that it's fresh in our minds and it has full, our full attention. Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband." God invented marriage. It was his idea. God designed marriage. God gave the first couple marriage and every couple since. God gives the gift of matrimony to humans today as well as the gift of the family. This is all outlined and given narrative focus in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We see the story of God creating the first two parents and giving them to each other in marriage and then creating the first family. However, God's pattern of marriage, that is one man and one woman for life, coming together as a one flesh union, is seen in the current culture as restrictive and outdated by today's standards. Complementarianism, as we've been studying, the idea that God has given roles to husbands and wives and they have complementary functions to one another in his divine order, has become the evangelical new boogeyman. It's almost a word of derision. We've learned in Ephesians 2, though, that this world helps that understanding because the world operates by pagan standards. 
Ephesians 2 introduced us to this back in our study of Ephesians 2, if you can remember back that far. Verses 1 to 3, Paul said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, contrasting life now in Christ versus our life before Christ, in which you formerly lived or walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we, uh, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh, the desires of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It tells us something significant, a few things significant, that those who do not believe the gospel are spiritually dead. They're living according to the consensus of worldly courses and ideologies. And they're under the power of Satan and his forces. Add to that, that unbelievers live in the lusts of their own flesh. And Paul says, they indulge in the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. It shouldn't surprise us then that there's pushback against God's ideals and God's idea of what marriage should be. Ultimately, adherents of the world's paganism are like those in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, who exchange the truth of God for a lie. They believe things that aren't true in lieu of things that are. Consequently, there are few things about which people are more confused than the nature and the purpose of marriage in the family. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul climaxes the book of Ephesians with marriage and family and then goes right into a section on satanic forces that work against things like that. We see the pushback against God's purposes in marriage and family, the realities of divorce it's hard to meet a family that hasn't been touched in an extended way or in a personal way by divorce. Gender dysphoria, gender confusion, homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, emotional and physical unfaithfulness in marriage, pornography, disobedience to parents, premarital sex and fornication, lonely spouses who feel trapped in their marriages, constant conflict in families and the inability to resolve those conflicts, parents who are too strict, parents who are too lenient, and homes in which family members would rather avoid conflict or enjoy it fully without ever finding any resolution. So by default, I think we all have to admit that we think naturally about family we think naturally about marriage and the relationships that are in the family based on we're, what we've experienced. I've told you before, my, my parents divorced when I was 18. Uh, my dad moved out of uh, mom's bedroom when I was 12. Uh, I remember the embarrassment of having friends come over to spend the night and having to explain that my, my parents didn't sleep in the same room and I came up with some whopper lies to try to cover that. It's hard for me, it was very hard for me coming into marriage not to have everything that I experienced be the filter through which I interpreted and actually some of the patterns that I had to stiff arm and, and not copy. I loved my mom and my dad. I think that they, they were true lovers of us as kids. 
But to be honest and frank, their relationship was not something I ever wanted to imitate or emulate. It's true that all of us have a past. It's true that all of us think currently pretty much because of what we learned in the past unless God's word comes in and gives us a true north. It repipes our thinking. It rewires the circuitry of our thinking. By God's grace, I don't think about marriage now the same way that I did growing up. I remember very distinctly sitting in my room and hearing the argument play out for hours and thinking it would be way easier to never get married. And then came Kim. And I rethought that really fast. So just so thankful for all the experiences that God put into my mind, in my, in my life rather, and that there's grace for all those experiences. There's forgiveness, there's mercy, there's lessons learned. No one is trapped by your past. And that's a grace. Divinely ordered homes, divinely ordered marriages, divinely ordered parenting, divinely ordered singleness ought to stand out as different in this world of dysfunctional relationships. And for the past few weeks, we've been studying God's blueprint for marriage. As Paul lays it out in Ephesians 5, to 33, as I said before, it is the most explicit instruction on marriage in the whole Bible. And today, we will hear Paul's personal summary of that paragraph. He actually comes to the end, and as, as good preachers do, he goes back and says, here's what I said. It's a good review. We're going to look at this review. It's just the last three verses of this chapter. And let me just tell you, it's going to be a review. I can't go through all the detail of the inferences and implications and uh, applications that Paul gives because we did that for couple months now. It's a review and a summary, and we'll take it as that. Now, we need to be honest in our hearts here for a moment about the temptations that lure us all and whisper in our ears and can lure us away from God's divine order about marriage. Also, God's divine order about the family, which follows in the, in the footsteps of a divinely right view of marriage. For example, if you're married, you can be tempted to think that you would be happier if you weren't, that you'd be happier single. Or you might be happier if you were married to someone else. You might be tempted to think that if you're single, you would be happier married and think that that would solve all your problems. Or you would be happier with different parents or they would give you what you want. You'd be happier or you'd be happier with more obedient children or different children altogether. No, someone else's children. No. Happiness, how many times has God said this in how many ways? Happiness is not determined by circumstances, but our theology about circumstances. And that's certainly the case with marriage. So to understand the biblical roles and goals of the family and let them inform your understanding of God then they will help you understand God's expectations and God's expectations will now ferret themselves out in our living. 
The more you can understand your role and your function in the marriage, the better you can serve and pray for others. Even if you don't have that state in your life right now, Husbands should understand God's expectation for wives. Wives should understand God's expectations for husbands. Children should understand what God expects of your parents and parents of your children. Singles should understand God's expectations for married people and married people should understand the advantages of being single. Listen, no no one should ever skip a portion of scripture. I was in a church when I was younger that was... uh, uh, it was a more liberal-leaning church. I didn't even understand what that meant at the time, but I do remember going to a Wednesday night Bible study where the pastor literally said, we're coming up to this next section in 1 John, and it's controversial and it's difficult, so I think we'll be better served to skip it and go to the next paragraph. Well, <laughs> we don't get that privilege. And as hard and as high is the expectation in this paragraph of marriage is, we should embrace it and praise God for it. And if, even if you're not in the state of being a husband or a wife, this will help you understand the gospel better, according to Paul, and it will help you understand how to pray for those and serve those who are married. So we're going to dive in. This is Paul's summary. And again, this is, this is quick review, and Paul gives it to us very quickly as well. So we're going to Look at this together and find three summary insights for enjoying the blessing of marriage. Three summary insights for enjoying the blessing. You can even make it plural if you want to, the blessings of marriage. The first is in verse 31. And we looked at verse 31 last week as the close of that uh, paragraph, that that section, and we can look at it as the beginning as well. You can grab that, Silas. That's, That's okay. You can grab it if you want to. It's okay. I didn't do it. It's okay. We, I drop stuff all the time. It's not a problem. What a gentleman you are to get your sister's notes. This is an example. Anyway, we'll go next week. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. The first summary insight for enjoying the blessing of marriage is this. Marriage is a beautiful mystery. Marriage is a beautiful mystery. Now, the reason we know it's a mystery is because verse 32 tells us this is a mystery. We'll see in a minute. It actually calls it a great mystery. I love it. It says a mega mysterion, mega mystery, a big time mystery. The reason for calling it a beautiful mystery is because Paul calls it such in 32. So we're going to import that back here. In verse 31, though, Paul quotes Genesis Chapter 2, verse 24. We looked at this in some detail last week, but we're going to dive in a little deeper this time. First, notice that Paul is is doing something here. He is what many people would label a biblicist. Now, I would consider myself a biblicist by the definition that we use the Bible as the, the sole foundation for what we believe. We also have doctrinal statements and commentaries and creeds and confessions that can help us, but the ultimate authority is the Bible. Paul is a biblicist here in that he goes back to the creation account for his theology of marriage. In other words, Paul used the scriptures as the basis of his faith and teaching. Notice that Paul believed in a literal Adam and a literal Eve. I remember in that church I was telling you about being taught that there was no real Adam and there was no real Eve. That was a group of men and a group of women and it created the group called people. Well, 
That doesn't help us. So how did this thing start? Paul took the Genesis account of creation of Adam, of Eve, serious and at face value. In fact, he took it so seriously that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he actually says he believed in the talking serpent. Does your theology of marriage depend on what you hear from God's word? In verse 32, we see that God created the marriage union of the husband and wife, and that it was divinely modeled on Christ's union with the church as his body, his bride. S.M. Baugh notes this, quote, On the historical plane, marital union then becomes a type of the historical anti-type of the fulfillment in Christ. In other words, marriage is going to actually be the type of the main anti-type, which is Jesus and the church. He goes on, prior to this disclosure in Christ, the reality on which marriage was predicated and to which it would later refer to was a mystery, end quote. What's the mystery? We studied a mystery all the way back in uh, chapter one, and we understood that mystery is something unrevealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. How does that work with marriage and the gospel? Hold that thought until the next verse. So let's break this down. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess that these, this sub um, structure underneath number one, I stole completely. I'm plagiarizing it openly from my premarital counseling course that Kim and I took. Okay? So I didn't make this up. You can blame my friend Stuart Scott, um, and he's the one who I got this from. It involves first leaving, marriage involves leaving. For this reason, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother. Marriage involves establishing a new home, a new nuclear family. The term nuclear family refers to a household consisting of a father, a mother, and their children in one house dwelling. They live together by themselves. Footnote, it does not mean, though, that a newer family cannot ever or for a while, live with their parents or have their parents live with them or have a, a relative live with them. That, that's not what this is implying. Nor does it mean that aging parents cannot live with married children. I just had a discussion recently with a, a dear couple who said our, our, our widowed father is uh, um, getting older and, and uh, rather than move him in somewhere, we have the means and we have the place to move them into our house and we want them to live with us. That's not what this means. If if they do that, doesn't mean they haven't left their father and mother. The critical observation is that marriage does involve leaving your parents' household so that you can establish your own. Now, in that, establishing your own, I think we have to be careful and avoid two extremes, two ditches that are on both sides of the road. First, I've seen couples get married, but one of them or both of them, newlyweds, have trouble letting go and leaving mom or dad. Or even the parents have trouble letting their married children leave and establish their own home. It kind of typically manifests in excessive visits and phone calls. Now, I'm a father, I'm a father-in-law, I'm a grandfather. I, I love interacting with my, my, my kids and their spouses and, and my grandkids. In fact, the grandkids can come over anytime they want and the parents can go date for a few weeks if they want to. 
That's, um, we are so blessed to have, have our relationship with our kids. But Kim and I had to talk about this when our, when our sons got married. Like, what does that mean? How much do we check in? How much do we check in on us? How much do we get disappointed if they don't check in with us? Kim and I talked to a newly married gal one time many years ago. And at the request of her husband, we had to sit down and talk about this because she was calling her mom seven to ten times a day. I'm glad for her relationship with your mom. But there needs to be some leaving. You say, well, how many times can you call? That's not the right question. Are you establishing your own home? As we'll see in a minute, who's your intimacy really with? Also, some parents, they don't know how to let go. You need to let them establish their own home. And the best thing to do to find that balance is to talk about it with each other. Have a good talk and say, what, what, what works for both of us? So you can have your own life and home and, and establish that. And we can have closeness and distance at the same time. That's one extreme. The other extreme is some couples are tempted to get married and ignore their parents. Thanks for the memories. Thanks for the food. Now it's time for me to move on. No, honoring your father and mother does not have a statute of limitations on it. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. You need to honor them and you need to care for them. You need to care that they're, they're grandparents to your children. And there's those balancing relationships should be talked about with each other and good communication. But be careful of the over-involvement and the ignoring. Bottom line is, God designed a new couple to leave and establish their own home. Also, it involves cleaving, leaving and cleaving, and shall be joined to his wife or cleaved to his wife. The Hebrew word means glued, glued to his wife. It's the idea of joining in marital intimacy and oneness. In other words, the husband-wife relationship is to be the only relationship of joining and gluing, no other relationship. I would encourage, especially young couples, be careful having people stay with you and live with you. And, and uh, th there are reasons and there are outliers for all of that, but be very careful that your, your heart is only joined to your spouse. I know there's reasons and excuses for, for all of that for periods of time, but your main attachment should be to your spouse. Let me say it this way. This joined to his wife means your spouse should be your best friend. Your spouse should be your partner in living life. Your spouse should be your most faithful and reliable and most sought-out counselor, confident, to be joined to your spouse means that you share the highest highs and the lowest lows with that person, with your spouse. I was thinking about this this week and remembered the wedding vows that I, that I read at every wedding ceremony that I do. And that Kim and I spoke to each other on our wedding day. I, Rick, take you, Kim, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better 
for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live or until our Lord Jesus returns. That little phrase, to have and to hold from this day forward. That's the joining here. It's cleaving to your spouse as you do to no one else. And that union has some divine math involved. And the next phrase will help us with that. So it involves leaving and cleaving, watch this, and weaving. Stuart Scott, not me, just blame him. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. This was our premarital outline. And the two shall become one flesh. What does the arithmetic and the math have to do with this? I love how Puritan Thomas Adams says it. As God by creation made two of one. He took the rib out of Adam. He made two people out of Adam. Made two of one. So again, by marriage, he makes one of two. Super clever. This means that the two lives of the wife and the husband weave together with such closeness that they are one. It's like two threads woven together into one strand. This is obviously a reference to the physical union of sexual intimacy and how God's designed that, but it also speaks more than that. I think this is emotional oneness, spiritual oneness, this union of souls before marriage, there are two independent people. And in marriage, those two people become one unit before the Lord. They are glued or cemented together. Dr. Hunter says, it can be compared to two objects that have been glued together, each maintaining its distinctive features. It's not the same as an alloy, uh, a mixture of metals, because in that case, the distinctiveness of each person would be lost. I think he's right. They each be, stay who they are, but they are glued together in a oneness. And again, Paul's practical considerations for marriage were based on Scripture. He says that's the case now because that's the way God designed it. The two become one flesh. For Paul and for us, thinking should drive theology. Excuse me, theology says the theology should drive our thinking. And thinking drives our practice. Theology drives thinking. Thinking drives practice. And we cannot overstate the importance for Christian couples who are married to be well-versed in the theological foundations, the biblical data that support their marriage in, marriage in general and their marriage in particular. So marriage is a beautiful mystery. It involves leaving, cleaving, and weaving, becoming one flesh. Number two, marriage is an analogy of the gospel. We've talked about this as a reciprocating analogy. Marriage represents the gospel. The gospel represents marriage. He says this in summary here at the end of this paragraph. Verse 32, this mystery is mega. This mystery is great, massive. It's huge. And you think, wow, what a huge mystery about marriage. And he says, oh, not so fast. I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ in the church. What? Marriage, 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 wait, I'm talking about the gospel. You see, what does that mean? The marriage that he's described done properly actually gives us insight into the gospel. 
Now, as I said, we studied the term mystery back in chapter 1, verse 9. It's a term that describes something which was hidden by God, which humans could not unravel by their own understanding or ingenuity, but now is revealed by God for all believers to understand in New Testament revelation. So here, Paul combines the oneness created by the marriage union with the oneness created by the gospel union to say that this was something not seen or understood in the Old Testament. And it wasn't. Oh, God is called a husband, and Israel was called a wife, and her harlotry to her husband was well pronounced. Read the book of Hosea. But nowhere do we see this oneness where we are in Christ, Christ dwells with us. We are members of his body, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us. We're, we have arms and legs and feet and nose and eyes. We are parts of his body, which he says earlier in the text. And that closeness wasn't described anywhere in the Old Testament, but it is here. And he's saying, isn't it amazing how we can be in Christ and so close to Christ as to be in solidarity with him? And that's illustrated in how close you can be with your spouse in oneness. Implications for believers are amazing. As believers, we should understand how close we are to Christ by being in him, in Christ. We should understand the priority of Christ's bride, the church, any Christian, think about this, any Christian not committed to a local church, not committed to a local church body is not only astray theologically, not only an overt sin, they are missing the beauty and union between Christ and the church. Notice it does not say that Christ's bride is individual believers. He could have said that. He's been talking about us as individual believers being in Christ for five chapters. He says, Christ's bride is the church. The preciousness of the church gathered and organized. Oh, it's true that each individual believer is in Christ, but he's speaking here of Jesus' relationship with the church. Also, Christ is the head of the church, just as he is every individual. He's head of our church, our individual lives, our mission, our philosophy of ministry, our theological commitments, he is head of everything. He is our leader, and that's the basis on which he says for a husband to act and live with his wife as a head, as a leader. It brings up a good question. Is Jesus, is he your Lord? Is he your leader? Ah, oh, I remember when we were studying Mark, those, in chapter one, there's those two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. They're fishing. And in his call to them, what does he say? Come, two words, follow me, follow me. That's the paradigm. That's the illustration of what it means to be the head or the leader. Follow me. Have you ever come to the place where you've said, I, I've seen that following my own impulses and desires and intuition, instincts, doesn't work well. I acknowledge that God became man and my Lord Jesus understands me like no one else does. He sees even the depths of my sin and will forgive them if I place my faith in him. And you've done that. And now I'm going to follow him as my Lord, as my master, as my head. 
my leader. That's Christianity. And I hope you've done that. Forgiveness of sin is available to you today by believing that. What an amazing gift. And he doesn't walk away from us, but we still follow him by what he said in his word, by knowing his living presence is with us, by seeing his example, by being with other people in the church who are following him as well. So I trust that you understand and believe the good news of salvation. And if you haven't, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Our prayer room will be open. We would love to introduce you to the Lord who will change your life and even better, will change your eternity from destination hell to destination heaven. Then he comes to the summary of the whole thing in verse 33. Marriage is a regulated relationship. He gives us rules, basically two. One to the husband and one to the wife. It's a regulated relationship. He begins with the husbands, which is interesting. He began with the wives earlier in the text. He begins with the husbands here, and he says, letter A here, husbands must love their wives. Husbands must love their wives. So watch that. I love the bouncing back and forth. A man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, two become one flesh. That mystery is great. Marriage, marriage, marriage. But I'm, never, but I'm speaking about Christ and the gospel. And then he comes back to nevertheless, verse 33, and he comes back to marriage. So marriage, the gospel, marriage. I love the solidarity of those doctrines with each other. So important. As Paul summarizes the role of the husband, he does not return to the husband's headship or the husband's authority. He returns to the action that he calls husbands to do. Husbands, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. He emphasizes not authority, not headship, but love. The model for this love is Christ and his love for believers, which is his death on the cross, sacrificial atonement. For Paul, the doctrine of the atonement, Christ's love for the church, expressed in his sacrificial death, is the pattern, it's the paradigm, it's the example of how a husband is to love his wife. That's a high standard. What does it mean? We went into great detail for four weeks on this, but this kind of love means caring about your beloved wife. You care about her. You want to do what's best for her. You know what's best for her. You know her wants and her needs. You listen to her. You shepherd her love for Christ. You lead her in your understanding of the word. You provide for her. You love the church with her. You protect her. You prize her. And you're faithful to tell your wife regularly that you do love her. We've kind of joked about that old saying that the man famously said, honey, I told you I loved you at our wedding, and if that ever changes, I'll let you know. That's, that's bad. <laughs> Have you told your wife 
in recent memory that you love her, not at the end of a phone call, not as you're leaving for work, but maybe sat down across from her, knees to knees, hands clasped, looked her in the eyes and said, I love you. You're the one that I love. He summarizes this interesting by saying, we love as we do ourselves. In short, husbands love their wives because they understand what it means to preserve and protect their own life. And by the way, this should make a wife's submission and following a joy, not a burden. What wife would not want to follow a husband who loves her like Christ loves the church? Men, we are to be lovers, not ogres. We are to be ones who pull our wives toward Christ with us, not who dominate them with emotional instability. And again, that's review, because Paul, we spent four weeks talking about that. And then he finishes by talking to the wives. Wives must respect their husbands, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, we have to find, I have to show you a wrinkle here that we have to iron out that has caused no small amount of consternation and even debate in the commentaries. Because this word that we translate respect is translated over a hundred times in the New Testament as something else. And only once is it translated respect, and it's right here. Term in the Greek is phobias, fear. And it's translated over a hundred times as fear every single time in the New Testament except here where the New American Standard and the ESV translates it respects. Why is that? Why is that? What does it mean that a wife must see to it that she fears her husband? Well, we have to stop and say yare, which is the Hebrew word for fear, and phobios, which is the Greek word for fear, have a much broader spectrum than we have in the word fear. We typically equate fear with being scared of or afraid of. I was thinking about fear this week and thought about the times I had really been afraid in my life. I can tell you a bunch of those times. This time I almost drowned. Uh, there was a time I almost fell off a cliff. There was a, but what, what rocks my world, and I get chills thinking about it now, is I was riding my bicycle home in elementary school from a friend's house to my house. And in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we had vicious storms that would come up. A storm came out of nowhere. I was on my bike riding toward home and it was right on top of me. The rain was just pounding. And you know what it's like when you see the lightning and you hear the sun, thunder at the same time? It's instantaneous. That was not only happening, I was seeing lightning strikes and I felt the hairs on my arm rising from static electricity. I thought this simple thought, I am about to die on my purple Schwinn. <laughs> so I did what any genius elementary school boy would do. I got off my bike and I laid in a creek. <laughs> the 
storm passed over. But I remember laying there thinking, I'm going to die. I was terrified. That is a nuance of the word phobia, but not the whole definition. We don't feel that way. You shouldn't feel that way, ladies, about your husband. Why do we say that? Why would we know that? Because look back up at chapter 5, verse 21. Be subject to one another in the phobia, same word of Christ. So Paul uses the same word in the immediate context about our relationship with Christ, which gives us insight into his meaning. We're not terrified of Christ like I was that thunderstorm. We respect him. We honor him. We have a respectful honoring of him. This is further explained by Peter. Listen fully to what Peter has said. We've referenced this a few times in our study. 1 Peter, 5 verse, 1 Peter 3, verse 5. For in this way, the, in the former times, the holy women also hoped in God. They used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. There's the submission. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. There's the authority and the headship. You have become her children. If you do what is right, listen to this, without being frightened by any fear. So we have to coalesce what Peter says and what Paul says. When he says, wives, phobias, fear your husbands, he doesn't mean to be frightened by a fear because God said through Peter, you shouldn't be frightened by a fear. So that word fear has one of the sub-meanings, phobias, which is honor and respect. So I appreciate what the New American Standard did by translating that respect. I think that grabs the nuance of the word there. This fear is not a frightening fear, like Peter talks about. It's a respect for obeying God within the confines of fearing Christ back in verse 21 and how you honor and submit to your husband. It means to honor and value your husband's headship. That's the bottom line. Honoring and valuing your husband's leadership, his headship. Now, the opposite of this fear or this respect would include something like this. Sometimes it's helpful to define something by the opposite. The opposite would be fighting and resisting his leadership, especially when it seeks to care for you and the family. And you resist it, you fight it. Or on the other side, disregarding his leadership, living and and acting independently from your relationship with him. So when you say that, see that Paul is summarizing here, what is he summarizing? The key... The key verb for husbands is love your wife. The key verb for the wives was submit to honor your husband. So respecting and submission are synonyms. Ladies, wives, how do you honor your husband's leadership? How do you promote and encourage his leadership? Do you follow him in ways that he recognizes? We ask the husbands, do you tell your wives you love them. Ladies, will you tell your wives that you're glad that God has called you to follow him? Do you pray for him to be a leader who continually seeks to imitate Jesus? I had a panicked thought this week that this was the last week in the series. And I thought, because I was looking at my bookshelves and as I was looking in my office, just over your left shoulder, I saw, I have three and a half 
shelves of books on marriage in the family. And then I thought, I have another couple of shelves at home on the same subject. Isn't it interesting that Paul only needed one verse? It's pretty simple. Our marriages are regulated by these two overarching character qualities. Let each individual among you love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. So here it is. Here's the secret sauce for marriage. You've been waiting for 12 weeks for this. Here it is. Ready? Men thrive when they're respected. And women thrive when they're loved. That's at the, at the heart of everything Paul has been telling us for weeks. Men, husbands, thrive when they are respected and honored. Women thrive and grow when they are loved. And imagine the marriage where he's leading as Christ leads and loving as Christ loves, and she is following and honoring as the church is to Christ. When each spouse is selfless, supernatural things begin to happen. There's your secret sauce for marriage. Respect and love. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking about sexual intimacy. And he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Now, without going into the nuances of that, we find out something important there. The great threat to marital happiness, to marital faithfulness, here it is, the great threat is selfishness. Thinking that your spouse has no bearing on you or your marriage or that your spouse exists to make you happier in your marriage. Actually, your purpose is to make them happy. And guess what? If both do, what happens? It's a beautiful happiness that happens. You start doing the science on this, it's amazing. You are the result of God bringing together two single cells from your parents out of millions of other possibilities. And yet those two cells came together to make you. Your parents were born in the same generation as your spouse's parents. And you guys found each other out of a population of 7.7 .7 billion people. That means that each of you has had roughly four billion people to choose from, but you chose each other. And God was involved in that divine work, that miracle. Know this. There is, we hear all this, and if you're like me, you just feel, my grandfather, plumb beat up. Just plumb beat up. There is grace for those of us who are married and want to grow, who failed in so many of these ways. There's grace. There is grace for those who've been divorced. God knows and sees. He's kept your tears in his bottle. There's grace for those of you who are single, who want to be married, but God has not put that in your life yet. There's grace for those of you who've been widowed, 
who enjoyed a wonderful marriage and now he or she's gone. There's grace. There's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's empowerment, there's perspective. Before a person gets married, they all, we all, have hopes, dreams about the one we're going to marry. You ever thought about the fact that you, as a husband or a wife, are the embodiment of another person's hopes and dreams? I mean, it makes sense to me that Kim was the object of my hopes and dreams. And when I look in the mirror, I say, oh, that poor girl. I didn't make the cut. But we can all become someone beloved by God by our obedience, which will make us more loved, appreciated by our spouse. Henry Smith said it. We said it at the very first sermon of this, uh, in this series. First, a man must choose his love, but then he must love his choice. That's where we are. For all of us who are married, it's time now to learn how to love better and to love our choices so that we will make much of the gospel that's illustrated in our marriages. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for getting plumbied up and for the grace that comes afterwards. Thank you for the enablement, for perspective. Thank you for forgiveness that I know my wife will need to extend to me and every spouse will need to extend to each other. We want to have better marriages, not only for our enjoyment, but because that oneness and that unity will point to your son and his unity with us. Teach us, help us, convict us, correct us, enable us because we want to be different because of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.